Hi, I'm Adam Phillips, and I love comics. Filthy. Some have been around for decades, but I have a special place in my heart for the ones that came and went in the blink of an eye. We call them one-shots, and some of them you may have heard of, while others might make you ask, why? This is One-Shot Wonders. Hey everybody, welcome back to a special episode. We're very excited this afternoon to welcome Mark Wade as our special guest Mark is a prolific writer of comics, has done some real classics, long runs on The Flash, Captain America, The Avengers, Fantastic Four, Kingdom Come, of course, a classic. He created Impulse, a favorite character of mine. He's written for just about every great character out there, I think, but we're still waiting on that Casper the Friendly Ghost series, Mark. So come on already. Let's go. And um, he's also the publisher at Humanoids, which is amazing. And they're doing some very cool stuff. So welcome, Mark. Good to have you. Good to be here. Good to have you. Jesus, your podcast, (laughs) not mine. Good to see you, sir. (laughs) Well, good to see you as well. And today we're going to be talking about a real classic, Superman versus Muhammad Ali, which was published January 31st, 1978, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics. Yeah. Which was finally published January 31st, (laughs) Yep, we're going to talk about that for sure. Yep. Before we get started on the specific comic, I wanted to touch a little bit on tabloid comics in general, just for anyone who's coming along recently enough that you don't remember that wonderful Mm -hmm. era. But my research, at least, showed that they started in about 1972. They ran to about 1980, and they were basically, if you lay a comic sideways and put another one on top. It's about that size. It's double. Mark, do you want to have things you want to say? Jump in, please. Yeah, that's basically it. Although it, they actually started a little, they, there were a few in like 30, I want to say the very first DC is 35 or so. Like uh, new, new yeah. fun was, was, a, was a tabloid back then when they didn't know what comics were, they were still in 1935. They're still trying to figure out what, what this is. And it comes from, you know, in order to make these comics, what you do is you take a gigantic sheet of paper and you fold it in half and you fold it in half again, you fold it in half again until you get the, the comic size. And somebody in 1972 remembered that if you just fold it one fewer time you know, <laughs> and, and bind it that way, you get the you get the tabloid comic. And right. I I was not completely unfamiliar with them because did you have the Whammo giant comic? No, but I was going to bring that up. This um, thing, yeah, it's like 66, 67. Yeah. And, and Whammo put it out. It's a, like, I think it's 48. I think it's only 48 pages, I think. But because it's about twice the size of a tabloid comic. I mean, it's gigantic, yeah. Yeah. this thing. There didn't have to be many pages in it. It's still crowded with, with Wally Wood stuff and Dan Adkins stuff and, and some really interesting and a lot of non-interesting stuff. But, <laughs> and then after that... You know, nobody touched the format for a while. And then in 72, early in 72, DC issued a special one-off Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer uh, tabloid, which I never saw back in the day. I don't think, you probably didn't either, did you? No, no. I finally got one, but it, it, you know, took for you. I didn't know this thing existed. And then, of course, the Shazam one was the one that we all remember. That was the very first one that DC did, you know, as a limited collector's edition. And that just blew my socks off, man. 
Mm, yeah, it's great material. It's a great format for it. I always found it interesting that the DC ones, I think for the most part, maybe all of them, were saddle-stitched, right. and the Marvel ones were square-bound. I cannot yeah. imagine why they bothered to make it to do it differently, but they did. I, you know, my educated guess is, well, actually, uh, doing the math on this, I think the reason is that the first ones from Marvel were 100 pages and not, and DC's topped out at 80. Uh, so the sense. first one was their Spider-Man tabloid, which came in at $1.50, where the yes. DC tabloids were a dollar. And I think it's the up the up page count make it very difficult to saddle stitch a 100-page book. Yeah, that makes sense. I mostly bought the Marvel ones. I bought some of the DCs because I was a pretty, you know, pretty much a Marvel zombie at the time. But very few of these had original material, you know, as far as I know. that Like the Marvel ones, really very few. Yeah. Uh, and DC had, uh, you know, some here and there. And Superman versus Muhammad Ali was one of those. And boy, it, you know, blew my mind when I got it when it first came out. Yeah. It's a spectacular book. <laughs> it really, it talk about taking advantage of the format. I mean, it's just yeah. the kind of book that you want to spread out on the floor and just like lie there like a little kid and, and read the thing propped up in your elbows. It's, DC had actually done what had happened was the limited collector's edition line, which was the tabloids had sort of started to stutter out in late 77, early 78 or so, actually earlier, I'm sorry, like in this in late 76, early 77 and sales were not really there. And so they shifted and called the renamed the series, all new collector's edition. Right. And so yeah, I'm trying to remember what the first one of those was. The Legion tabloid was the Legion superhero tabloid was the one right before this. Mm-hmm. I think it may have been Superman Wonder Woman right before this. Sure. Um, and, and that lasted for, depending upon how you count, either th- either four or five of the all new ones with like Superman Shazam, Superman Wonder Woman. I know this one. Uh, and then uh, sprinkled in a few more reprints and then sort of, then it, it just came to a, a grand finale and 79, I think was the, was the tail end of that. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for, thank you for coming to my Ted talk about. <laughs> <laughs> We've got so many of these Ted talks, um, on my other podcast, we've been talking a lot about Marvel's giant size program, which is another, yeah. you know, another boondoggle to try to get the newsstand to give space to comics because um, they were having a hard time competing with the higher prices on uh, regular magazines. Well, and, I'm sure that's... And, and not to get off topic, but how heartbreaking was that? Because they promised us 60 cents, a hundred pages of material. <laughs> yeah. And then it came out at 35 cents for 48 pages and then 50 cents for 68 pages. And it was all a mess. I mean, <laughs> if you read the yes. letter columns in those early issues of the giant size things, they freely admit plans change from week to week. We don't know what's going on. Uh, and, the yeah. ta- and the tabloids were uh, very much along those lines, too. It, uh, not just a way of presenting the material, but also a way of trying to find a place on the newsstand as mm-hmm. in the early 70s, you know, newsstand sales started to dry up on regular comics because, you know, I've got the display space in my store. You know, I can make five cents on a copy of Wonder Woman, but I can make 10 times that much if I put an issue yeah. of Sports Illustrated up. Yeah. 
Right. And well, and also comics had to fit in a spinner rack or something like that, whereas magazines were, you know, a larger size. Now, but but coming back to the tabloids, where I saw them, you know, they were vertical racks for magazines that were yep. the basically eight and a half by 11 size. And then there was like a flat space at the bottom, like a shelf. Yeah. And that's where they put all these things because there was nowhere else to put them. No they were too big. Yeah. So, you know, I, I feel sorry for retailers <laughs> because they they always have to deal with this kind of mishigas and uh you know publishers act like oh it's fine you guys will figure it out but no it's hard no, it and i can't yeah. swear that didn't you know contribute to the ultimate lack of success here mm, yeah well and that lack of success of course was like minutes before the uh, beginning of the direct market so right. things were really shifting over but superman versus muhammad ali Let's talk about that a little bit and its uh, genesis and, and that sort of thing, um, because uh, it's interesting. I mean, I was reading the afterword in the deluxe edition hardcover that Jeanette mm-hmm. Kahn wrote, and she basically says that, you know, Don King brought the idea to D.C., which I don't want to say I, I doubt Jeanette necessarily, but it's a little yeah. like eh, it's got to be more to the yeah, that. I think that my understanding of what happened, and this is coming from stuff that Jeanette was writing closer to the time, was that Julie Schwartz saw Superman versus Spider-Man, which had preceded this, mm-hmm. and had joked, you know, as Superman versus Muhammad Ali, now there's a comic, and the wheel started <laughs> turning in Jeanette's head. Nice. And then they reached out to Don King was the way I, I, I had heard the story. That makes a little more sense to me, and yeah. it sounds like something Julie would say. Um, yeah. I love it. I also wonder how much the vague idea was in the air, because as I was mentioning before we started recording, you know, in 1975, there was a hit song, Black mm-hmm. Superman, by a guy named Johnny Wakelin, and it reached the no- number 21 spot in the Billboard Hot 100. But before then, there was a different version of it that he released in England called Hungarian Superman. And it was I about a different boxer. It was about a different boxer. And he also did some other songs about boxing, about like different fights and things. So he had a niche. Yes. <laughs> Josh Wakelin. Anyway, well, it's boxing. I don't think reggae beat myself. The, the sort of laid back, easygoing reggae beat. But, you know, yeah, he, you, you, Johnny. I know. I haven't heard the Hungarian Superman version, but what I read was that it was a pretty different arrangement. And then when he rewrote it to be Black Superman, he said he noticed how popular reggae was. Yeah. And so he just I got mushed you. in a little reggae, which is fantastic. So looking at the comic itself, of course, uh, it, it's sort of the, the credits are a little odd because it makes it sound like Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams plotted it and then denny pulled out and then that's, neil scripted it yeah that's kind of what happened yeah okay i mean Which, what denny did you can i mean the Dennyisms are all over the first half of this book and you can see yeah. you know i mean you know the scrub is the name of the alien race and there's no more <laughs> definite there's more denny a name than that um yeah, that's great but but yeah i mean 
I mean, just going back to the Genesis, I mean, after they managed to cut oh, the deal yeah. with Don King, which apparently took forever, obviously, to put it in context for those of us who weren't born in the Pleistocene era, at that time, 76, early 77, Muhammad Ali, you know, heavyweight champion of the world, unquestioned, one of the great athletes of all time. And so it made sense. But Neil, God bless him, is not the fastest artist. Just the guy you, the guy you want, but not the fastest artist. And so the book was supposed to come out in early 77, and then it moved to fall of 77, and then it moved to winter of 77, and then it finally sort of creeped out just weeks after Leon Sphinx took the title. Yeah, I remember hearing that at the time, and I knew nothing about boxing or anything yeah. like that, but I just remember by the time they got the book out, Ali was no longer champ, which yeah. it was unfortunate, but he got the the um, title back a few months later, apparently. Yeah, it's 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 just it, terrible timing. But right, can we talk about who drew the book and, and talk about Neil? Absolutely, yeah, I want to hear this. Well, because this comes to me through John Workman, who you know, letter extraordinaire, who was also on staff in production at the time, and he told me this, and my jaw hit the floor. Mm. He said, "What happened was, you know, they all these people came in the offices and they were presented because they had total approval." That's part of my understanding, too, is they had an unprecedented level of complete and utter approval on this thing and every sure. of it. So they wanted to look at a bunch of different artists to see who they responded to. And Jeanette showed them a bunch of different DC comics at the time and just kind of she kind of was trying to nudge them toward Neil. But they had sure. the smorgasbord of artists in front of them. <laughs> and you, you would never guess this in a million years. The one they zeroed in on was Kurt Schaffenberger. Oh, my goodness. Now, wow. <laughs> I have I bow to no one in my love and respect for Kurt Schaffenberger, yes. but he was a journeyman artist who had a very specific, very sort of soft, very old fashioned style. And if I love he, his work. Yeah. But I mean, but you have to admit, if he had drawn Superman versus Muhammad Ali, no one would be talking about it today. Probably not. Or if no. you would, you know, you'd be going. Why did Kurt yeah. draw this? And that's so bizarre, especially. Um, they like the likenesses. They, they, they he did because he does well, yeah. great. You know, if you look at Schaffenberger's stuff, the where he really excels is secondary characters and and just mm. ordinary people on the street. And they zeroed yeah. in on that, like, oh yeah, it looks looks good. But that's thank so. goodness Jeanette took the reins and sort of steered them over to Neil. Well, and also, I mean, Joe Kubert was at least thought about, right? Considered, yeah. He did the yeah he did the original cover layout yeah yeah right and it's spectacular I, that's it's a really interesting cover and it would have been a very different tone it's darker of course it's not really the finished piece either but right. it's darker and um, you know Neil's is very open and sort of got a, not just the cover but the whole book has a very strong science fiction feel that's right. lovely I mean do you think Joe Kubert's version of the cover would have had a million celebrities on it no no I don't think that was the plan right. Yeah, I mean, what happened was it was Neil's idea, as I understand it. I mean, you know, Joe had done the layout with the, you know, crowd and so forth. But it was Neil's idea to have celebrities in the audience. And for the longest time, I thought that the process was DC reached out to certain celebrities and asked who would want to be in it. And if they <laughs> said yes, Neil would go and draw them in. That's exactly the opposite of what happened. It turns yeah, out it was, it was opt out. 
Neil had yeah. drawn all these celebrities, hundreds of celebrities, and they had to go with the DC staff, had to contact every one of them. And so it was an opt out. If you yeah. don't want to be here, then Neil would put a mustache on you or, <laughs> you know, just change the hairstyle slightly or do whatever little work he had to do to make it just look like either Joe Schmo or like, you know, yeah. uh, you know, some staffer. So, yeah, I mean, my favorite mo- thing that she met, Jeanette mentions in the afterward is that I forget who it was who got replaced by Kurt Vonnegut. Yeah, I remember. You know? Yeah, who was that? I'm trying to and, remember. But he also threw in Jill Kremitz, and I thought immediately, oh, uh, it was George C. Scott. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Added his wife, Jill Kremitz, who was a publishing figure who I bet was Jeanette's pal. You know, that yeah. has to be. She she had her own uh, imprint at, like, Random House, I think, or something. She had definitely had connections, yeah. Yeah, that's fantastic. There's something absolutely absurd and fabulous about that cover because it's like you got people you could almost believe and then people who are just like, really, Lucille Ball, Jimmy Carter, they're going to be at a, yeah, at a fight exactly. yeah. in yeah. space. <laughs> people who were, you know, people who were celebrities when he drew it, but weren't celebrities by the time it actually ended up coming out. Those oh, kind of yeah. people. That's true too. Sure. I mean, those sweat hogs, you know, the, the sweat hogs. Was pretty- <laughs> <laughs> uh, and and Bridwell, thank God. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> oh my goodness. Who else was? Were there other hands involved in the drawing of this thing? Or was Not it pretty much? I mean, yeah. I I know Terry Austin did backgrounds here and yes. there, um, and Neil always had a coterie of of anchors who would come and you know help him with right. background stuff. So ne- Terry's the only one I know of, and you can yeah. really, you can really see it in that first two page spread, the, which is so beautiful. It feels weird talking about this on on audio when I know. I show the world, <laughs> but it's that opening two page spread of this street scene in downtown yeah. metropolis and it is spectacular looking it, it really is and actually there's a place where he signed his name which i remember as a kid going oh i bet that's that guy what's his name terry austin oh like he does the x-men yeah 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 oh that's funny uh, yeah it's like on a on a cup or something you know yeah. anyway uh but i remember really looking at that and kind of going like okay not just the cup but i mean like Okay, you can see the difference in the inking in the background because I don't think they credited him in the original comic, right? Correct. They yeah. did not. Yeah. yeah. Um, and the credits were were weird because, and again, I've heard this story in different iterations depending upon who's telling me, but mm-hmm. my understanding is that Danny came up with a plot, Neil right. grew. And as Neil is wont to do, as Neil drew along, Neil decided maybe the story needed to go in this direction or that direction and took it in sure. his own way. And especially because it took so long mm-hmm. to do. There was a point about the time they get to the Fortress of Solitude in the middle of the book where Denny just snaps and goes, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm tapped out. You know, I can't do this anymore. And so uh. went over to Neil and Neil. And I don't know. I mean, nothing duplicitous was done there it wasn't like neil did that on purpose i'm sure but no, i'm sure you know, but the two of them as well as they worked together and as much as they respected each other there are more there's more than one story of of where denny would turn in a script and the pages would come back and they weren't what denny had called for so yeah it's not unheard of in comics for that to happen no. in any case you know yeah and um, get somebody with like neil who is such a strong personality and considers himself yeah. a writer then it you know it's much easier to see that happening 
for sure. And also, this is a period where Neil's hardly drawn a comic in like six yeah. years or something. He's mostly doing advertising work, a few covers here and there, and then suddenly to take on something like this, which is I think what seventy-two pages. That's a 70, big undertaking. Seventy-three, I think. Yeah, seventy-two plus the inside <laughs> back cover. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. It's. So. I mean, he and I know he and Jeanette had a relationship when yeah. Jeanette first got there. Right. And Jeanette was. I mean, they were both you know young, good-looking people. Yeah. And. They had a, and that's an open secret. I mean, everyone knew they had a relationship, which oh, is yeah. why Neil ends up doing a lot of covers in 1977 and 1978, just <laughs> sort of out of the blue. As you say, we hadn't seen Neil in comics for, you know, three or four years at that point. So what a breath of fresh air that was. It was great. But, you know, I also remember noticing, like, not maybe at the time, but like as a collector looking back, there's the um, pre-72, let's say, Neil, that was a little more detailed. And then later, the, the mid-70s stuff was slicker and um, less, I don't want to say less detailed, but, like, there was less fussiness of the inking. You yes. Know? Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, and it was still great. There's never a moment where you go, but that's he's clearly phoning it in. <laughs> yeah, no. The beauty of Neil is that to this day, mm-hmm. to this day, you can't look at that work and go, he's phoning it in. It's, it's, his style has changed a, a bit over the years. But as, as somebody who did his last work, you know, with him, that Fantastic Four book that the two of mm-hmm. us did. Yeah. Um, I'm looking at those pages. And other than the fact that he plays with page layouts in a, in a pretty bizarre way these days and he doesn't leave room for balloons anywhere, um, <laughs> it's still it's still. It's still indescribably Neil, and it still shows somebody who is putting in the work. Yeah, yeah. Not to get too much further off this uh, topic of the the comic itself, but boy, do I wish he would finish that, um, you know, expanding universe graphic novel. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. That that would be something else. He genuinely believes that he knows how the world actually came to be. That's great. I love it. Great. Awesome. Let him let him throw out his theories. Eager to see. Yeah, that was great. So what do we think of the story itself? I mean, you know, it's so much. Oh, you know what I wanted to ask, actually, before we get into that, even do we think the Muhammad Ali camp had any say in like Ali's dialogue or anything like that? Because some of it reads very distinctly differently from anyone else in there. And I think it's it's it rings true. Yes, it does. I I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, the first, you know, like you look at the first dozen pages or so, and it couldn't be more Denny. It just couldn't be expressions, you know, or turns of phrase, idioms. Everybody sounds like a Denny you know, mm. character. But as I said, they were the, the elite people got complete and utter approval over every line of dialogue, every line of, of artwork, every bit of the coloring yeah. and stuff. So it wouldn't surprise me. Mm hmm. You know, it's a crazy story, but in a way, it's also a kind of very typical, you know, alien forces human champions to fight and then fight their champion. I mean, the Avengers, they did things that like that in the Avengers with the Grandmaster. And, you know, it, it's kind of been done a, f- a bunch of times, and I'm sure in science fiction stories, too. But I think they did a great job with it. Yeah. And it's a lot of fun. You know, <laughs> there, there's some. Just, just yeah. some great moments in it. Go ahead. There are. I mean, you know, I mean, first off, how do you get around the fact that in a real ring fight, yes. Superman would 
cream anybody? Right. And the answer was it, the fight took place on a planet under a red sun and Superman loses his powers under a red sun. So they set this up earlier for those who haven't read. They set this up earlier in the in the book with a scene where Superman takes Muhammad Ali to the Fortress of Solitude and opens up a red sun lamp there to make him vulnerable and then gets schooled. That's the wrong. It comes out the wrong way. It gets taught by yeah. Ali how to box because. If you're Superman, you don't have to know how to fight. Yeah, yeah. You know, true. it's a Superman really doesn't know much about throwing a punch. And mm-hmm. so they, you know, they got in some training there under the red sun lamp. And then, you know, the fight took place under the red sun. It's a tough one because, you know, nothing about the story works if Muhammad Ali loses. Because the whole point is he's the world's champion. But yes. it's kind of hard to see Superman lose, too. It's kind of that, that you know, I love <laughs> Superman. It kind of sucked to see him lose. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, they did a great job sort of separating them so that they each have a mission. And I mean, yeah. Superman has that spectacular scene where he lines up all the alien spaceships by luring them and then smashes through each one. It's it's uh, really kind of got a visceral punch to it. Yeah. Um, that yeah, Neil has really made that work. Neil's, again, for those who haven't read, you know, the idea is that once Superman is defeated by Muhammad Ali, there's a little cloak and dagger stuff where we, you know, the, we, the readers don't understand, don't know it, but Superman has actually swapped places with Bundy Brown, one of Ali's, right. You know, uh, you know, one of his coterie and, uh, is sneaking around the spaceship and then surprise, it's actually Superman in disguise and he's asking, yes. he's doing stuff and he's, he's able to take care of the pending alien invasion because he knows as it does anybody who has ever read a comic book before that even though the aliens who are behind this have said, we will spare Earth if you have this contest. He knows they're lying. And so, they're, you know, meanwhile, Muhammad Ali is, is getting the crap beat out of him by this gigantic 12-foot-tall alien fighter. <laughs> and, and it's Superman's job to, you know, while you're doing that, let me take care of the alien invasion. Because mm-hmm. uh, they're lying. They're, they say they're going to let us alone. They're lying. They're not going to let us alone. Right. And, you know, and right. So it, it's timed very nicely, actually. It's like the, the way it comes back and forth and back and forth. And, it, and eventually it's Superman takes care of the alien invasion at the same time that Muhammad Ali finally lays the haymaker punch and knocks right. the guy right out of the ring and wins the fight. Yeah. At which point the, the, the Ratlar, the yeah, head rat, of the Denny and, again, name. Denny name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, says, nope, I take yeah. it all back. And then. What's his name? The guy, Hanya, the guy Hanya. who um, Ali has just beaten, suddenly starts this, – this I thought was funny – suddenly gives a speech after he yeah. has said nothing, nothing the entire issue. Right. And I thought for sure he couldn't talk, and then suddenly he starts going, you know, <laughs> I've got some things to say. Yeah. It's great. Uh, it's hilarious. And in, in its way, you know, yeah, it's um, it's just such a fabulous story. And uh, I'm going to say something that's good. You, you guys. I was going to say, and it is, it is inarguably, inarguably one of the very best looking comic books of that decade. If not absolutely. one of the best looking comic books of all time. I mean, yeah, story absolutely. aside that you could look at that artwork over and over again. Yeah. There's tons of great stuff in there. Like there's yeah. that two page spread where he does that sort of uh, posterized effect of uh, Ali in purple. Yeah. Uh, God, it's like, it's beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. 
Anyway, I was going to say something very inside baseball here, which is, do you remember um, at the D.C. offices that they had a giant like four foot by eight foot blow up of the wraparound cover on the wall? Yep. I can top that because a few <laughs> years ago on eBay, uh-huh. I found some overseas company that was selling an even bigger one. Oh, my it, God. It, it came in panels. So I had, <laughs> to, I had to put it up panel by panel. But uh, wait, wait, together. But you put it up. And it is in my downstairs hallway. And that's the first thing you see when you come in my apartment oh is this goodness. gigantic five foot tall, you know, 10 foot wide <laughs> replica of the cover. It's beautiful. That's amazing. No, what I was going to say about that, though, was it drove me crazy because, as you know, I was at D.C. for a million years. Yeah. And every time I walked by that, it just drove me crazy that they shot it off of a copy of the book with a printing error on the cover. And it's a big <laughs> There's a big brown splotch in the middle of the spine. And it's yeah. like, why did you not pick a better copy to work from? Or it's just you're you're in an office full of fucking production artists. You can fix <laughs> this. Yeah. It that drove me crazy. I mean that's a that's a small, a tiny little thing to be driven crazy by, but it did yeah. drive me crazy. So what else do we want to say about this? Do you have any other things to add? I don't really. I love a uh, Gaspar Saladino did the lettering. It was amazing. Yeah, he did the best display lettering. Yeah. He he completely ripped off Spider-Man's logo to do the Muhammad Ali logo. <laughs> and I don't I can't swear that that wasn't partly by design, because, again, it was to follow up Superman versus Spider-Man. Sure. Yeah. So I can I can make a case that Gaspar was nudged in that direction. Um, but, yeah, it's I don't know what else to say other than. It's, yeah. you know, DC published it. It was, what, 250 at the time, which was yeah. a crown, yeah, you know, a King's Ransom when we were kids. <clears throat> oh, God, yeah. But they <clears throat> reissued it, what, 2010, I guess, maybe? Yes. In, there was in a, the big a full-size, well, yeah. there was a full-size tabloid, and then there was a deluxe edition that was more regular-sized. Yeah. I, so. I will also say this. As we know, Neil has a penchant for when they reprint his work going back and fussing with it and yep <laughs> doing all kind of modern effects and just kind of tinkering with it in a george lucas please leave it alone sort of way yeah and so when they announced this thing i was terrified because it's the best looking comic of that of that decade don't screw it up yeah and i got and i got the thing and i sat down with the original side by side and just panel by panel i went through it and i am proud to report that neil didn't touch a line of, a line of artwork i was um happy that that worked out that way yes and i was actually afraid it was going to be the other way but it, exactly it yeah. yeah and and by the way i worked just a little bit with the um with the muhammad ali camp when yeah. we were soliciting this thing and they were delightful to work with. I mean, it was mostly just like, here's what we're going to do. Here's how we're going to announce it. Here's, you know, they were just like great. All the, every step of the way, they loved it. And um, they were very happy with the results. And understandably, it's a yeah. really nice reprint. And it's cool to see things like this. And as you mentioned before, New Fun Comics number one is now in a yeah. big hardcover. How crazy is that? Well, my question is, if back in the day, back when it was reissued is, I how hard was it to find all the releases for the celebrities? Oh gosh. I don't know. Cause That's they had to be probably Paul, impossible. Paul, you know, Paul would never have let this thing go to reprint unless they could find the actual re- releases from 1976. Right. I guess, yeah. That's a really so, good point. And I yeah. did not, I don't know. Yeah. Paul cautious, cautious man. Yes. Um, 
I, I don't know. I never heard a thing about that end of it, at least. Probably a good thing. Uh, you know, I yeah, because there were times when legal would say it's okay to do something, and Paul would say, yeah, but we're not going to because I think it's going to work out. <laughs> yes. Yeah. What? So you solicit? You that's right. You were you were there at the time. So do you have any memories of how well the re-release did? Not. I'm not sure. I do. I'm just thinking for a minute. Like, could I look that up? I. Would have I'm I'm not sure I don't think it did enormously well or anything it was probably you know a few thousand copies of each version it wasn't like a blockbuster or anything yeah so, it's more curiosity than anything else I mean that was sure of course good question who was behind who was pushing was it Didio who was pushing to get it reprinted or who do you remember uh, not particularly I mean there 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 were a lot of people involved in figuring out you know what's going to be on the slate for every quarter and i kept trying to get on that committee and i never managed i, <laughs> I don't know why i just because i had a million ideas yeah me too i wish I, I wish i you know i wish you had been there to speak for those of us who love the stuff <laughs> from our era yeah, yeah for sure um well look it's been a lot of fun mark and i appreciate it anything else you want to add i think i think we have exhaustively covered i don't think i don't think there's anything <laughs> anyone else could say about this book well, what about the staples let's discuss this. <laughs> I know. but it was you know you're with me on this that we waited for over a year for this thing in the fan press and waited and yeah. waited and so when it finally came out right after christmas that was a that was, and actually just you know weeks after the superman movie came out so is that right i didn't remember that yeah no actually before i'm sorry before superman was 78 so yeah sorry a year beforehand um, uh, yeah, well, it's close, though. Really close. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Well, it's been a pleasure talking. I appreciate it. You're, I appreciate your time and your insights. And, uh, yeah, maybe we'll uh, do this again sometime if we think of something equally exciting. But thanks for being here. My pleasure. Anytime you want to talk about the minutia of any old DC comic, you know who to come to. I love it. Okay. Thanks a lot, man. You bet. Take care. Thanks for listening to One Shot Wonders. I'll be back next week with another One Shot comic. Meanwhile, hit the subscribe button, leave me a review, tell your friends, and go buy some comics.